the European Parliament passed the Copyright Directive with the controversial Articles 11 and 13. Visiting Professor Ray Friel, the University of Limerick School of Law breaks it down. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So thanks, Ray, for joining me via Zoom today uh, while you're (laughs) back in Ireland. So it's great to have you join me for this. Um, Before we get into Articles 11 and 13 specifically, what was the basis of the Copyright Directive? Well, the Copyright Directive is part of a suite of um, legislative amendments within the European Union to sort of update for the digital era. One of the big things that the European Union is concerned about is that Europe has fallen behind with respect to the new technologies. Facebook, in some senses, and even to an extent Google, are somewhat old hat. Their bigger concern actually relates moving forward to things like artificial intelligence. And so this directive and this piece of legislation is designed essentially to be part of a range of activities which will put Europe at the forefront of digital development and the technology therein. Who is it to protect primarily? Within the European Union, there is a considerable debate. As it transpires, it looks like it has been won by the traditional IP holders of copyright in particular. Um, And so it is quite favored or quite centered towards favoring those who currently hold copyright um, interests. And more importantly, I suppose, protecting them in ways which previously had not been the case. One of the difficulties with IP in general, and I think we discussed this before when we were looking at the um, Google penalty and antitrust, is that a lot of these laws with respect to intellectual property, antitrust, have not kept up to date with the new technologies. And so this is an attempt effectively to try and protect what is a valuable commercial asset and what serves a valuable social function against the sort of your generation's internet commons, if you'll pardon the expression, where effectively everything is free. The reality is, no, it's not. Which is probably why like Getty Images, for example, is one of the bigger supporters of this. Yes. What you find is that almost all the larger companies um, have tended to come out to support this. Those who hold the copyright, not necessarily the tech companies like Google, (laughs) who consider this will be a way of uh, taking from their profits. Diving further into into these, like Article 13, for example, has gone completely viral all over the Internet. It's known (laughs) as the great meme ban of 2018. There, there have been some pretty vocal freedom of speech advocates uh, on YouTube, especially, that have really spoken out about it. Um, what exactly makes Article 13 specifically stand out? Well, Article 13 is, I think, and I, I, I will be one who would sort of respect the rights of copyright holders to earn a living from it. But Article 13 is very broadly drawn. And essentially what it will do is require those people who use user-generated content, who upload that material, to filter it and to make certain that they are not using material which is copyrighted. So, for example, in YouTube, would have to put a filter on in terms of material which is coming into them to make certain there isn't a breach of copyright. And the reality becomes, effectively, the potential is, first of all, for a kind of 
abnormally large version of Big Brother is watching, where everything goes through machines, which we traditionally would have associated more with military intelligence and censorship in, say, terms of uh, some former communist countries. Um, that will now have to be done. And what you're going to find, I think, in many ways, is it will probably be done by the, I, the larger IP holders. So what this will do effectively is protect large IP holders who will troll and point out all the stuff that is there and demand that it be taken down. And that will have to be supplied by the larger companies, such as Google and Facebook. So I think it is it's quite devastating in its current impact. Having said that, from a European perspective, and this is something where I think people often don't understand European legislation, a significant amount of interpretation and a significant amount of application will be left to the individual member states. So, for example, in various different aspects of it, how it actually gets to be enforced, what the meaning of it is, perhaps less so in Article 13, but in the corollary Article 11 and the link tax, that's very vague, for example. And what directives do is allow member states a degree of latitude and freedom in actually implementing these sorts of rules. So who actually enforces these rules? Ultimately, it will be the commission, but it will come through from national legislation. And so, as I say, it's somewhat complex, I think, from an American point of view, because Mm. when a directive is passed in a European context, that's not a piece of federal legislation like you would understand in the US. It doesn't apply to all 27 or 28 member states. Instead, what it does is it sends a direction to the state to pass a law in accordance with that. And there's a degree of flexibility, flexibility in terms of how that might look on the statute book, and flexibility in terms of how it might be um, interpreted or applied. If there subsequently is a dispute, which there can often be, that a member state is not correctly applying the law or has not correctly transposed the law, then it goes to the European Court of Justice, who gives a uniform ruling. So that could be many, many years down the line. So what what would be the time? We'll, we'll go back to more specifics sure. on thirteen eleven, but this is fascinating as an American for sure. Um, <laughs> the so so what's the timeline? There, people are talking be twenty nineteen twenty twenty before these rules even go into effect. Is that accurate? It's twenty nineteen twenty twenty before the directive is passed, and then there will be a period of implementation, which each member state will have the ability to bring it into their laws. And that could be another three or four years. And effectively, you would probably be looking at about a five-year period for this. Now, it depends. Sometimes it can move slightly quicker. Uh, and that's one of the dangers, which is that effectively, these are very, very large companies with large legal resources um, who can wrap these things up in court very quickly. But in general, if you're looking at an ordinary directive, you're probably looking about a five-year implementation period across the member states. Going back to Article 13 a little more, mm-hmm. the big thing the content creators uh, out there on the YouTube, Twitter, uh, Reddit, and all that have really been up in arms about is the fact that the it basically puts it on YouTube and Twitter, all the, these hosts to enforce using, it's going to have to be algorithmic. It's the only way it's going to be able to happen. There's too many, too much content going up. And they're already very heavy-handed when it comes to such things as monetization and all of that. Um, have, have any of the major companies talked about what they're planning on doing with this? Or are they just kind of saying, "Don't we hope it doesn't happen, but it's past now? I, the reality is, in terms, as I understand it, the technology is actually, oddly enough, only available from American companies. They are the only people or the only institutions who have the capacity to do this. So oddly enough, this legislation will actually favor American companies with the technology. 
in many ways, and I suppose this goes back again to another aspect of European policy, one wonders whether this is really less about IP control. And so I know this is the moment everybody, and that's why you wouldn't be talking to me otherwise, um, everybody's really upset. We can't have any memes anymore, anything like that. I think that will settle down. In many ways, what was more likely to happen, I think, in a sense, is this is part and parcel, not only of trying to get existing rules to work in a digital age, but it's very much a concerted attempt by the European Union to make American companies essentially distribute their profits, which have been earned in a way which they haven't been taxed within the European Union. So in many ways, the idea here effectively will be companies will have to end up paying something. So you you might find something like um, YouTube or the, the video stores paying a general copyright fee, which will be then distributed amongst copyright holders rather than necessarily having to pinpoint who did what. And we have something similar to that with respect to organizers organizations like IMRO. And that will be a sort of backdoor tax in the same way that these fines for Google on antitrust are a backdoor tax. And the way that, say, Apple has been hit in Ireland and elsewhere for state aids, which is, again, another backdoor way of redistributing the profits which are being generated by American companies uh, amongst more European-focused nation states. It reminds me of music distribution with yes. likes of BMI, CSAC, NASCAP. Exactly. And, and so we have IMRO here in the Irish one, which is the same sort of thing. You're going to pay a fee and it will be distributed then rather than necessarily having to put that technology in place. The technology that will be in place to, to actually do Article 13, if you actually were to allow that happen in the hands of private individuals, it would not be good. It's way too much power um, and way too much possibility for abuse. We're not comfortable with governments having that power. It seems absurd to think that we will be comfortable with private corporations. Uh, so what exactly is Article 11 about? Article 11 is somewhat <laughs> less popular amongst your generation, more popular amongst mine, in as much as that what it effectively do is it's called, if you like, the link tax or the snippet tax. So effectively, when you go on your search and you're looking for a news item or something like that, that and it links you to a media site such as the say CNN or the BBC that the company which does that the, the service provider will have to pay a fee in order to make that link work so if they take for example such as say you might have a little picture and you might have the headline from uh, a news site and you might have a couple of sentences underneath it to grab your attention. So if you're looking for what's happening in the Carolinas at the moment, you might have a picture of a storm, you might have a devastation happening all, all over the place and a few words. To do that will cost the um, company money. They'll have to pay money to whoever's providing that service, ABC, CBS, and CNN. Um, and that is, again, another method, if you like, of trying to do two things. One is to ensure that revenue from providers like Google is distributed to, say, European news agencies who provide some of this material. Um, and the other is, again, of course, to try and make certain that those companies like Google will only make links to valid sites. We've heard a lot about fake news and so on. But so one of the issues becomes that if you have to pay for it, you'll be much more cautious about the links that you make. So is this to protect uh, the copyright, basically the copyright of the material directly, or is it to kind of get the ad revenue back to the provider? Well, basically what it's designed to do effectively is to try and preserve 
an, an official media, for the want of a better word, that essentially the revenue sharing in terms of monetization of ads to the links and so on is not working out as well as one might think. Mm-hmm. A lot of the media agencies are under financial pressure. They're being turned over by the younger upstarts who are working out in the you know, back of a garage and making things up to some extent, but also having valuable uh, contribution to make. And so the idea effectively is that this would assist in the shift from sort of um, the official print media, you know, like the Concord Monitor, into their digital edition, because you'd have a link to their digital edition, and it would replace the um, paper subscriber effectively. So, what, so what's the argument against doing this? Is it because the cost is going to be dumped on to the, uh, the, the, the social media hosts? Yes. And also the fact, of course, that what you're doing effectively is you are limiting what you're going to get. So if you have a link through to these sites, wherever these sites are, and you have to pay for them. One argument says, well, you'll only pay for the good stuff. But the other argument, of course, is that you can still make, there's no actual link tax. So if you had just a hyperlink, that doesn't appear to be taxable. But if you take something from it, like a picture and, you know, the headline, a few words, that would be. So what's more likely to happen is that either one of two things. One, that um, the number of sources which will be referred to will diminish as companies will only want to pay reputable sources of media. The other, of course, is that they just will skip this altogether and we may not get as much access to information as we would otherwise have thought. Then Europe is split on this. Um, Although the proposal passed with a relatively comfortable parliamentary majority, there is no doubt about it that there is a very strong divide in Europe as to which way one should go with respect to this. Yeah, because I I could see the point of view that this will wouldn't isn't there a chance this also hurting the content providers with the fact that now they might not get so much of a push to their sites for more information. Um. Their argument is that the people are linking through to these sites and they're not necessarily paying for them. So what they're doing effectively is they're allowing uh, companies to link through and based on an ad sharing, revenue sharing from the ads, and that that model is not really working out. That's essentially it. So again, what you're looking at here is a divide not only between those who think that intellectual property rights you know, are paramount versus the freedom of expression, but you're also getting a divide between the larger companies who have a lot more to lose and who want to have um, to protect that versus the sort of people who are looking for the young internet startups. And that's one of the things with both Article um, 11 in particular is that there are exceptions for small usage So in other words, the bigger firms, which tend to be American, will be hit harder by it than smaller outfits, which are mostly European and may well find themselves exempted. And again, because it's like Article 13, it's part of a directive, there is some huge uncertainty as to how this will translate down into each of the member states. And it's going to be difficult, for example, uh, with the UK now leaving, the UK would normally be a much more liberal orientation in terms of these things. Um, what impact that will have in terms of each member state doing it and how exactly it will apply to the United Kingdom after it leaves the European Union. All of these are difficult questions. And these seem like they'll have a more of a tremendous impact on American-based companies because are there any competing <laughs> companies to YouTube and Google and Facebook on the European side? <laughs> 
No, and I think, again, one thing that we said before, but it is certainly the case, this is the biggest difficulty for Europe, and it has refused consistently to face it. We do not have the ethos or culture of entrepreneurship in the new technologies. But what this is trying to do is, although we don't have Google and we don't have Facebook, we do have a large number of smaller companies who could bubble through. And particularly, they could bubble through with respect to things, I would say, like future developments in artificial intelligence and so on like that. And so what you're finding here is this legislation is aimed at both, in some ways, protecting copyholders' rights, who could be European-based, forcing payments on American companies who are using this technology with scant regard to the rights involved, and at the same time, exempting European tech companies who are at the startup to medium-sized stage and that will allow them almost like a bubble within which to grow and develop, whereas at the moment they are being stamped out because of the sheer dominance of American tech firms. So yes, you're absolutely right, and you've hit it on the nail on the head here. This is really a very strong attempt um, to control uh, your U.S. dominance in the European market and to allow e European flair to emerge. Behind that, there's hundreds of millions of euros being pumped into the science and tech uh, industry here as well. The odds are this, these rules are going to have impacts on American users too, or Canadian users outside of the European Union yes. too, because you can't, it's almost impossible to separate out the European users from everyone else. It's how the mm -hmm. social media works. So it's, people need to keep in mind that this is not just this cluster countries this is going to impact. No, absolutely. And remember, I think I was saying again on the antitrust and Google Fine, where Europe is very much beginning to see itself as the commercial police person of the world. They have done this very effectively, for example, in GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which has had an impact way beyond European borders and has meant, for example, that we've been cut off from some US websites um, because they can't conform with uh, European policy on privacy. And so now if I link through to certain sites in the U.S. from here, it will come up, this is not available in your jurisdiction, whereas it previously would have been. And the reality becomes that the Europeans are going ahead in greater terms of protection, in terms of privacy, in greater terms of protection for copyright holders, all of these things. And that is having a huge impact worldwide. And so it's not a case either of saying, well, we can just ignore it because it's happening in Europe and it won't affect us. Quite the contrary. It's actually, as you say, it's a global issue. And the reality is that the Europeans are moving faster and further than almost any other country. And because it's a large market with a rich um, economic background, they are having a disproportionate effect in the same way that U.S. companies were in terms of providing this technology. But in terms of regulation, the U.S. is well behind. Have European Union leaders viewed the GDPR as successful and that's kind of making this directive be pushed through so quick? Yes, I, I, think, I think that is absolutely the case. I think there is a large body of belief within the European Union, in this case is only my opinion, which effectively says this is the way that we can compete with uh, US and other foreign um, companies, technology. And remember, it's not just the US. Looking forward, it will be countries like China as well, which will provide threats to the European Union. And this is a way that if we can't beat them on that battlefield, we can put in the regulations which will at least curtail or involve things like I've talked about profit sharing through disguised taxes in a sense. 
Thank you to Professor Friel for joining me today, and thank you for listening to the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about us by visiting law.unh.edu or following UNH Law on social media. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.